Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Hello, this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo, inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Welcome to John Allen's The Future Church. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Vatican journalist John Allen wrote his book, The Future Church, in 2009, so we're now 10 years into his predictions of what the Catholic Church will look like in the 21st century. When John Allen wrote the book, of course, Pope Francis had not been elected, and Pope Benedict seemed to be in good health and looked to be our Pope for a long time to come. In 2013, all of that changed with Pope Benedict's surprise resignation and the election of the Pope from Argentina, Pope Francis. After an introduction in the first chapter, John Allen looks at the world church. And the bottom line for that chapter was that already at the turn of the century, there were more Catholics in the developing world than there were in Europe and North America. All the demographics indicate that that will not only continue, but will grow as the church in Africa, Asia, and Latin America continues to burgeon. Therefore, the church of the 21st century will cease to be Eurocentric and centered in North America. With increased mobility and increased travel, all those national boundaries will break down. Therefore, what will the Catholic Church really look like in the 21st century? A lot of what we expect and a lot of what we take for granted will disappear. In the second chapter, John looks at evangelical Catholicism. And again, the simple version of this is a more intentional uh, Catholicism, a more committed Catholicism, and the dying of the old uh, Eurocentric cultural Catholicism. To put it simply, I'm Catholic because I'm Irish, I'm Catholic because I'm Polish, I'm Catholic because I'm Italian, I'm Catholic because I'm French, I'm Catholic because I'm Spanish, will simply not work anymore. We'll be Catholic because we've chosen to be Catholic. And one of the influences in evangelical Catholicism, which interests me, of course, as a convert from evangelicalism, is this sense of the personal commitment to Catholicism, the intentional commitment to Catholicism, which is more fervent, more focused, and not linked at all uh, with the cultural background and the cultural baggage that came with a person's nationality and therefore also a cultural identity. So these two influences together world Catholicism and evangelical Catholicism will show us that the Catholicism of the 21st century will be global, but it'll be intentional. Cultural reasons for becoming Catholic will continue to break down. 
Is that evangelical Catholicism conservative in nature? Um, Yes and no. Uh, It seems to be conservative, but John Allen points out that it is not really conservative. It's instead a particularly strong answer to the increasing secularism in the world today. Well, in this fourth episode, we look at John Allen's third chapter, which is on Islam. And I have to admit, I don't have much interest in the Islamic religion. So John Allen's chapter on Islam is very informative and very necessary. So I'd like to begin then with John Allen's analysis of uh, Islam and its influence on the Catholic Church. The first thing he talks about is 9-11, the terrorist attack on New York City, and then Benedict XVI's response at the Regensburg conference where he made the point that Islam seems to be, by its very history and its writings, to have a violent dimension. This very much put Islam on the agenda of world attention. And John Allen says, The questions raised by Islam, the hopes it generates as well as the fears it elicits, are destined to cut across a steadily expanding range of issues in the 21st century. In effect, Islam has replaced Judaism as the most important interfaith relationship of the Catholic Church and Catholicism has become a lead actor in the global drama surrounding the so-called clash of civilizations. Does interfaith conversation actually matter? We're going to go on and look later at the responses of John Paul II and Benedict XVI to Islam and see how they were actually subtly different and and how important that difference actually was. But just for some numbers, he goes on to point out that there are 2.3 billion Christians and 1.6 million Muslims in the world, representing more than 50% of the human race. Islam represents competition for converts, social influence, and political power in such parts of the world that are developing, sub-Saharan Africa, Indonesia, and the Philippines, and the Indian subcontinent, where Christians and Muslims are living together. More regularly, people have a worry about Europe becoming Eurabia. In other words, the Muslims, bit by bit, by immigration and a higher birth rate, taking over the heartland of Christianity in Europe. But also, the fate of Christianity in the Middle East is at stake. When the British mandate in Palestine ended in 1948 and the State of Israel was born, Christians represented 20% of the population. Today, they're 2% and dropping. And remember, these words were written 10 years ago. On my recent visit to the Holy Lands and talking to a Palestinian Christian, he was saying the uh, persecution of the church by the Muslims and also by the uh, Jews in Israel continues uh, to force the population of Christians in the Middle East to drop. One of the possible points of optimism, John Allen says, is the idea that in an increasingly secular world, there might be an alliance between Catholicism and Islam, standing up for religion and faith in the face of rising secularism. What is actually happening? Is Islam about to take over the entire world? Is Christianity dying? Will it be replaced by Islam in Europe? I don't think so. And to understand this, we have to look at the demographics in more detail. Let's look at some statistics between the growth of Islam and Christianity. Worldwide, Islam adds roughly 23 million adherents a year, according to the World Christian Database. And this growth is mostly demographic. Islam adds roughly 1 million new followers through conversion. Recent declines in birth rates in Islamic states suggest that even this modest rate of growth may not be sustained. Christianity, on the other hand, adds about 30 million new members a year, 7 million more than the Muslims. 
A higher absolute total, but a lower rate of growth, those nations with the fastest rate of population growth and the youngest demographic profile today are evenly distributed between Christians and Muslims. So barring some X factor, 100 years from now, Christianity will still be the largest religion in the world. And fears of the world being overrun by Islam, such as those expressed by Samuel Huntington in The Clash of Civilizations, when he said in the long run, Muhammad wins out, John Allen thinks those ideas are overheated. In fact, the running is about even with Christianity coming out on top, not Islam. When John talks about some sort of X factor, I've always wondered what the answer might be to the problem of Islam. And one thing which John Allen doesn't talk about, which history has shown to have effect over the years, is simply this, is conversion. Conversion not by proselytism or forced missionary effort, but conversion uh, simply by work of the Holy Spirit, which is poured out on particular nations and particular peoples. And I would not be at all surprised that for various different reasons, we see a a mass conversion of Muslims to Christianity. Why might this happen? Well, first of all, as they continue to live in secularized Western countries, they might be looking for a religion which is more adaptable and to help them to fit into the country where they live, and Christianity is there waiting. And therefore, Muslim converts in some of these countries might actually bring a new growth of evangelical Catholicism, which nobody would have predicted when they simply saw the waves of immigrants coming to European countries. Of course, for this to happen in the European countries, there needs to be a vibrant evangelical Catholicism, which is based on individual commitment and an intentional uh, faith. The cultural Catholicism linked in with being French or being Irish or being Polish uh, or being Spanish or Italian will not really convert cultural Muslims, but an intentional evangelical Catholicism, alive and vibrant in Europe, may actually be the thing which convinces them to convert, because they'll be converting to a faith which is not linked with a particular culture, and their culture and their background and their ethnicity uh, could be woven into their new Christian faith. If this should happen, what we would see, therefore, are Middle Eastern Christians who are living in European countries, very much Middle Eastern, and also perhaps embracing a form of Christianity, which goes right back to their roots. There may be Chaldeans and Maronite, which make a home for them in Europe. John Allen also makes the point that Muslims tend to view Christianity through the lens of Europe and North America, whereas Europeans and North Americans very often view Islam through the lens of Saudi Arabia and Iran and Iraq. In fact, the majority of Christians in the world are not from Europe and North America, and the majority of Muslims in the world are not actually from Saudi Arabia and the countries around the Arabian Peninsula. Instead, the largest Muslim nation in the world is Indonesia, followed by Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, and then the countries of North Africa. So therefore, Muslims in the world are not actually uh, predominantly from the countries around the Arabian Peninsula, and neither are Christians predominantly from Europe and North America. John takes some time to analyze the question of Islam in Europe. And he looks at the demographics. He says by 2025, the National Intelligence Council projects a Muslim population in the European Union of 28 million. By 2050, 40 million, which represents 15% of a population of roughly 500 million Europeans. 
In mid-century, therefore, Muslims could be 25% of the population in France and Germany. But in Europe as a whole, some experts believe that the Muslim total will level out off at about 15%. Therefore, the idea, again, that Islam is going to take over Europe is a bit of a panic point of view. All the projections are that by the middle of the century, they will still only be about 15% of the European population. What about Islam itself? How can we understand it? For those of us who have very little understanding of Islam, John paints a picture with a broad brush. He paints four different categories of Muslims to help us understand the Islamic religion. The first big division are between the Sunnis and the Shiites. You've heard these names in the news, probably. It's important to understand the difference. First of all, Sunni Islam. The word Sunni comes from the Arabic term Sunnah, meaning tradition. And they follow, following the death of Muhammad in 632, the forerunners of today's Sunnis accepted Abu Bakr as his rightful successor rather than Muhammad's blood relatives. And this is where the split between Sunnis and Shia originated. Diversity within the Sunni universe is staggering, ranging from the puritanical Wahhabi Islam, or the Taliban at one extreme, to reformers and modernists who are very willing to compromise with secular culture and to meet Christians in dialogue. In general, Sunnis believe in a direct approach to God through the Quran without need of clerical intermediaries. Sunni Islam is somewhat analogous to low church congregationalist Protestantism, de-emphasizing formal ministries and centralized structures in favor of broad participation, reliance on the Quran, and individual interpretation. Shia Islam regard the relatives of Muhammad, first of all his cousin and son-in-law Ali, and then his heirs through the prophet's daughter Fatima as his legitimate successors. 90% of Iran's population of 70 million is Shiite. Shiites are also a majority in Iraq and Azerbaijan and a plurality in Lebanon, and there are significant Shia populations in Afghanistan, Syria, and some of the other Islamic countries. The seminal event in Shia history is the martyrdom in 680 of Ali's son Hussein in Karbala, Iraq. And this is treated in a way analogous to the death of Christ on the cross. And a ritual commemoration of it is at the core of Shia experience. Shiites cherish a set of spiritual figures analogous to Catholic saints in the twelve imams, or the seven imams, depending on which strain you follow. They are even sometimes seen as quasi-divine mediators between the human world and the divine realm. So you can see that Shia Islam and Sunni Islam are very different. Sufism is another category of Islam. It's not a branch of, of Islam analogous to Sunnis and Shiites, but instead it's a grab bag term that covers a wide variety of mystical and Gnostic practices, as well as diverse forms of popular devotion. Sufis have sometimes been termed Muslim Buddhists. In other words, Sufism is a kind of strain of spirituality, a free-ranging individualistic expression of Islam rather than any kind of formal branch or formal organized denomination of Islam. Finally, Alan talks about radical Islam, and the West has invented a couple of terms for this, jihadism, uh, Islamism, and so on. The birth of modern Islamic radicalism is conventionally dated to 1928, when an Egyptian schoolteacher named Hassan al-Banna founded the Muslim Brotherhood. 
Albana was a Sufi Muslim, and he intended his organization to be a vehicle of moral and social reform. But by the end of World War II, the Muslim Brotherhood was radicalized and became an armed movement that carried out attacks against the British and fought alongside the Palestinians. In 1948, the Egyptian government banned the group, and Albana himself was assassinated. Out of that Egyptian context steps Sayyid Qutub, a poet who joined the Muslim Brotherhood and who created the intellectual basis for Islamic radicalism during the 1950s and 1960s. He actually came and studied in the United States, uh, and he saw had a particular disgust for the licentiousness and the lucid living in the United States. Another stream feeding Islamic radicalism is the Wahhabi movement in Saudi Arabia, founded by the 18th century preacher and reformer Muhammad ibn Abd al-Wahhab. He wanted to forge a pure form of Islam, and this local sheikh saw the movement as a means for extending political control over the peninsula. So the Muslim Brotherhood and Wahhabism intersected in the 1960s, and this, out of these two movements, radical Islam and violent Islam has split off into various different movements and various different sects as we've seen things evolve. The trends in contemporary Islam... Uh, seem to be that there is a continued Shia surge. The Shia, Shia, although they are in a minority, seem to be growing and therefore challenging the Sunnis even more. Remember that the Sunni and the Shia are violently opposed to one another. Most of all, in Islam, there is a crisis of authority. There is no particular pope, there's no particular voice of authority over all of Islam which can unite Islam. Therefore, all of the different divisions in Islam is one of the greatest enemies to the global movement of Islam. Added to this is a, as Islam copes with secularism, is something called neo-Sufism, in which a kind of free-ranging individualistic spirituality seems to be making headway where people might call themselves Muslims, but they don't hold to any particular formal religion. And it's kind of like being spiritual, but not religious. If my idea that Muslims in Europe might actually convert to Christianity is true, then it's amongst this uh, neo-Sufism where the converts might come. These are Muslims who are already sitting pretty lightly to their Muslim traditions and a strict interpretation of Islam, and therefore if they're seeking a spirituality and seeking a new faith, if they're trying to fit in with the secular society in Europe in which they find themselves, Christianity and what we are calling evangelical Catholicism might very well be attractive to them. Some of the other tensions between Christians and Muslims in Europe and around the world. John Allen gives Nigeria as a test case. Serious Muslim-Christian violence broke out for the first time in Nigeria in 1978. Waves of violence in Kaduna in 1987 and 1992 left hundreds dead. Clashes between Muslim and Christian tribes across the country in the early 2000s are estimated to have cost at least 1,800 lives. There are conflicts, therefore, which continue all across Nigeria as Muslims slaughter Christians and Christians react against it. The other thing which exacerbates things in Nigeria and other African countries is that very often underlying the Muslim-Christian tension, there are ancient tribal tensions between the different peoples who have, that have always existed uh, in a state of feud and fighting amongst themselves. 
Finally, John Allen looks at the relations with Islam under John Paul II and Benedict XVI. John Paul II is not revered by some traditionalists because of this incident when he kissed a Koran and was trying to build up a relationship with Muslims. John Paul II, therefore, had a fairly peaceful approach to Muslims in trying to build as many bridges with Muslims as possible. Benedict XVI was more insistent in drawing a clear distinction theologically between Islam and Christianity. He was not quite so open-ended as John Paul II was. He saw the clash of civilizations, and he preferred for the discussions to be intercultural rather than interreligious. He saw that intercultural dialogue was possible, where Christians, where Catholics could actually meet with Muslims and talk about shared concerns of violence, shared concerns about the human person, shared concerns about abortion, shared concerns about poverty and wealth, and therefore interact together on cultural issues while there was not really much to talk about when it came to theology. Well, this is the end of the abridged version of the fourth episode of John Allen's The Future Church. If you would like to listen to the full analysis in which he goes on to ask how this is going to play out over the rest of the 21st century and how Catholicism and Islam might work together or might continue to be in violent clash and what that means, then please listen to the full-length version over at my blog. On my blog, the full-length version is behind the paywall, and I ask you to be a donor subscriber. That helps to pay for the production of these podcasts and to get them out to the thousands of people who listen who aren't able to afford it. So if you can, go to my blog, DwightLongenecker.com. That's DwightLongenecker.com. Click on the subscribe page and learn about the benefits to become a donor subscriber. You can also browse my books, listen to my other podcasts, and be in touch. Thanks for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.